0: I invite you to please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5. This morning we will be beginning a new series from the Word of God regarding forgiveness. And we're going to find in this passage a very key point, a very relevant aspect regarding forgiveness. Now, I'm sure all of you know that there are many people today and many churches and denominations who hold to a teaching that is commonly known as the health and wealth gospel. I don't know whether they call it that themselves. You think they do? I don't know whether they call it that, but we call it that. We say that they believe and hold to a health and wealth gospel because they teach predominantly that God would have you to be healthy. That if you have the faith, that if you only believe, that you will be healed. And that's their message. And likewise with that, if you have the faith and you believe, God wants you to be wealthy. God wants you to be constantly blessed with health and with wealth, the health and wealth gospel. Here in this passage, I want you to look down to verse 17. We have a man who is brought before our Lord. And if there's any man who did not have health, and I would probably imagine wealth, it was this guy. He was in bad shape. We read beginning in verse 17, One day Jesus our Lord was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. That is a powerful statement. There were a lot of leaders, religious men, who were there where Jesus was, and he was in a house, as we will see, listening to him teach. The text says, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. That is our Lord. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. What amazing passage. I mean, we all conjure this picture up in our minds when we read this passage. Here is Jesus in this house teaching these men, these important men. See, the important guys were there. The high muckety mucks were all there listening to Jesus teach along with a lot of other people because the text tells us that there was a crowd. And along comes this group, probably, I'd have to say maybe five people, four carrying the guy and the guy on the stretcher, maybe three, maybe two guys could have done it. But they have their friend on a stretcher. Because the text tells us he's paralyzed. He can't walk. He can't move. He's paralyzed. He's crippled up. Paralyzed on this stretcher. And they can't get in the door. And they can't get in a window. They can't get in where Jesus was. Any way to set him in front of Jesus or to bring him to Jesus that he would heal him. Obviously, they knew he could. Obviously, they had heard of his miracles and his abilities to heal. They had great confidence and faith that Jesus could heal their friend, but they couldn't get him there. So what do they do? They go up on the roof. Now, the roof in those days, they were not like the roofs we're used to with wood and shingles and stuff. They were flat. They were mud. They were tile, whatever. And they ripped it up. And imagine the guy that owned the house. Some believe that it was Peter's house. But could you imagine the owner of the house? Here's the, hey, what are you doing to my roof? But they were so determined to get their friend before Jesus. Perhaps they had come from a long distance, and they had come all this way, and they would not be denied. And so they did whatever they could whatever it took to get their friend in front of Jesus. So they rip up the roof and they lower him down in front of Jesus. They had good concept of where he was, I guess, in the house because they brought him down and it's excess that they lowered him right in front of Jesus. Now, as I said, if ever there was a man who was crippled, and needed to be healed, here was the guy. And so, if I were to teach according to the health and wealth gospel, this guy's lowered down right in front of Jesus. Jesus sitting there. Teachers used to sit when they taught. And Jesus was sitting there teaching, and all of a sudden, stuff falls from the ceiling, and there's this guy in front of Jesus. So Jesus has this man on a stretcher right in front of him. So if I'm a health and wealth gospel preacher, I'm saying, here's what Jesus said, Heal! Get up! Be healed! Heal! Right? Right? If that's the priority in Christianity... The first thing that Jesus would have said to this guy was, "Be healed." Maybe would have smacked him on the forehead. Well, he couldn't have fallen over because he was already on his back. Here is a guy, helpless, crippled, paralyzed, unable to probably even speak depending on how bad, how bad he was paralyzed. However, in the eyes of God, there is something far more important than your physical health. Far more important than your bank account. Far more important than anything else in your life. And so Jesus looks at this one who was laid down in front of him, unable to walk, unable to move. And what he says to him is, in verse 20, seeing their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Your sins are forgiven you. He doesn't then immediately say, oh, and okay, get up and walk. That's all he says. That's the most important thing anyone can have. It's not that your crippled arm is made well, or your crippled leg is made well. It's not that you're blind and now you're able to see. Your sins are forgiven that is the most important thing that's because forgiveness of sins represents your standing before almighty God it represents your relationship to God it represents your eternal destination whether heaven or or hell. Sins forgiven is what matters more than whether or not you can walk. There is nothing more important to anyone than having your sins forgiven and then having a right relationship with God that comes from that forgiveness. So, Over the next weeks, we will be considering from several portions of the scriptures what I have entitled the fundamentals of forgiveness. Now, you would think that this would be universally known in churches today, that people would know all about what it means to be forgiven because preachers would preach about it all the time. Well, as a matter of fact, In our day, sometimes even mentioning the word sin or that you need to be or even suggesting that you need to be forgiven of your sins is often an anathema in many congregations. How dare you talk about my sin? I don't need to be forgiven of my sin. I need money. congregations, pastors, preachers, oftentimes in our day, refuse to preach on sin and the need for forgiveness of sin. I am not going to shy away from it. This is the culture in which we live. This is the state of mind that is so prevalent in so many places today that I believe that we need to go back to some fundamentals and thus the name, the fundamentals of forgiveness. Some of what I'm going to go through in the coming weeks is basic Christianity. But yet I want to make sure you know what the Bible says. I want to make sure that you know what you believe and where it comes from in God's word. Because rather than pastors calling on men and women to be holy and to pursue righteousness, we have these purveyors of this false gospel calling on their people not to repent from sin, but to give me, let's see, $300 each so that I can buy a new 65 million Gulfstream G650. Just 300 bucks each. Is that what pastors are called on to ask their congregations for? A a jet? How has the church gotten to such a state? Because that man who is asking for that new Gulfstream G650, a $65 million private jet, is one of the epitome of the preachers of the health and wealth gospel. And so he thinks he needs this jet to go bring the gospel around the world. Don't give him the jet and keep him home. That would be the best thing the world could get. We need preachers who tell men and women that they need to be forgiven from their sins. Not that they need to be wealthy or healthy. This is where we're going. And I'll be dealing with, as I said, basics, so that we know what the Scripture says. Therefore, I want to begin by considering what I've called the essence of forgiveness. The essence of forgiveness, meaning the heart of the issue, the heart of what it is to be Forgiven, And we're going to begin by seeing some of the principles shown in the Bible that teach our need for forgiveness. And we'll begin with what I would call the source of our need for forgiveness. The source of our need for forgiveness. And it's right here in this text. The source of our need for forgiveness is shown Right here where Jesus says in verse 20, Your sins are forgiven you. What did Jesus forgive? His sins. Now whether you use the plural or whether you use the singular, your sin, meaning all of your sin, or your sins, meaning all of your sins, it's the same. It's all of the your sins, because as we will see in subsequent weeks, we are all sinners, all of us. And so that which is the source of our need for forgiveness is our sin, our sin. Jesus declared that what he needed was to be forgiven of his sins. It is Man's sin that alienates him from God, that separates him from God. And as we get into the whole matter of forgiveness, we're going to see how that came about and what is said in the scriptures regarding our forgiveness. But you all know that it began with Adam. And Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 5, that sin entered through the one man and sin spread to the whole race. All men are sinners. And it's not that we're sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. All men are sinners. You will probably hear that more than once through this series. It is man's sin that needs to be dealt with. And so that's the first thing that Jesus addresses with this man. I would say this as well. When you look at this poor man, this paralyzed man, many people would say that it is, he was paralyzed as a result of his sin. Now we, we looked recently at John's Gospel in chapter 9 where Jesus healed the man born blind. And what did everybody say? Was it this man's sins or his parents that he was born blind? No, it was to the glory of God. However, with that understood, sin is still the cause of our infirmities. It was when sin entered the world that death entered the world. Sickness. injury. Death. It's all sin. Because I tell you, there won't be any of that in heaven. Won't be any sickness. Won't be any infirmities. Won't be any illness, crippled, paralyzed people. Because all of that comes from sin. But that's not what Jesus is dealing with here. And we know that because he did not immediately heal the man. What he's dealing with here is is his relationship to God and the fact that he needed to have his sins forgiven. The most important thing to Jesus was this man's sin to be forgiven. Far more than his physical condition was his spiritual condition. We have turned many times to the passage in Ephesians. Men are dead in what? Their trespasses and their sin. That's the worst condition. We live in a day when many, many people strive to get into great shape. Well, some people. And you know, they go to the gyms and they work out and they do all this stuff. And for some people, it's an obsession to get into great shape, to be physically in shape. And yet some of these people you read about every now and then, they're jogging down the road and they fall down dead. Even though they're in great physical shape. What matters not is what kind of physical shape you are in. Although I'm not discounting that. We should not let our bodies go. We should be diligent to some degree in making sure that we maintain our health and our physical stamina. But what matters most is your heart before God because you may look great outside and be in great physical shape, but inwardly you're dead spiritually. And that ain't good. And so why are people so worried about physical appearance when they don't seem to care at all about their heart and what kind of shape their heart is in, not the literal pumping one, but the spiritual heart that does not beat towards God. They have a heart of stone and they need a heart of flesh. That's more important than your physical well-being. Now I want you to just turn over a page or two and look at another text and we see a similar response from our Lord. As we look at him and his forgiveness of this woman and her sins, chapter 7 in Luke, look down to verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Similar situation here. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. You notice that? It calls her a sinner. I want to know which woman in the city wasn't a sinner. Where was the one that wasn't? But we read on and we'll understand what he's talk, what is being said. And when she had learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him, at his feet, weeping. You have to understand what's going on. The text says, forgive me for doing this again. I don't usually do this. The text says that they were reclining at table. This is how that would have been, like this. And he would have been facing the Pharisee this way as he was reclining at the table, and the food and everything would have been here. This is a little higher than it would have been. But they would, it would have been like this. So she would have been behind him at his feet. And that is what the text is speaking of when it says that she comes up behind him at his feet with an alabaster vial of perfume. And what she does is she pours that on his feet and wipes his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. So you have that picture. He's reclining at table. She's down at his feet, pouring that vial of alabaster perfume onto his feet, kissing his feet, wetting his feet with her tears and wiping his feet with the hair from her head. This is what she was doing while Jesus was at this Pharisee's table. Now, the Pharisee, of course, he's a noble guy. We read in verse 39, the one who invited him saw this and said, notice it's to himself. He says it to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now again, where's the woman that's not a sinner? Why are they saying that about this woman? Why does Luke mention that? Because obviously she was a prostitute. She was one of the uh, women in that town who made her living selling herself. And although we recoil at such a thing, it still goes on. Quite frequently and often, I would imagine, in all different kinds of ways, in all different kinds of situations all around us. But this was one, a woman who was obviously known, a known prostitute one who was known in this city as a prostitute or a notorious sinner, we might say. So Jesus, from there, goes on to talk to the Pharisee about forgiveness. He says to him, and obviously the Pharisee's name was Simon, verse 40, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. A money lender had two debtors, one who owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Now, you can just read your marginal readings. I'm not being profound here. A denarius or a denarii was about a day's wages. But think about it. 500 denarii represents about two years worth of work. So he owed two years worth wages, and another one owed 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love the more? It's a great question. It's a great illustration. And I think all of you can relate to it, because here we have that wealth thing. The other one we had the health thing, but here Jesus is talking about the wealth thing. You owe two years' wages. Now, for us, for some of us, that would be a lot of money. A lot of money. I can't imagine having that much debt other than a house, you know, mortgage, things like that. But this is a lot of money. And he forgives two years' wages. Now, even 50 days' wages, that's a couple of months. That's good, too. But still, two years. Can you imagine that? Owing two years. And Jesus says, who will love the more? And you all instantly know the answer. The one who had been forgiven more. And I can appreciate that. I'm I'm, I'm thankful. Look, it was really nice of you to forgive the guy that owed 50 denarii. But good grief, thank you so much for forgiving me 500 denarii, I really appreciate it. It means a great deal. And you love the more. It's just natural. And so Simon answered, verse 43, I suppose the one who had been forgiven more. And he said to him, you have judged correctly. So it's not wrong. Jesus said, you have judged correctly. But then he turns toward the woman. Remember, she was at his feet behind him. So he turns to the woman. But he speaks to Simon. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, you know Simon saw the woman. And you know Jesus knows Simon saw the woman. Because what Simon said was in his heart. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would know what kind of woman this is. So Jesus knew his heart. As Jesus knows your heart and my heart. Jesus knew his heart and what he said even to himself. So he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, which was the common thing to do. You know why? You know why that was so common to do? Because now you would go normally or many people would go to the bathhouse. You didn't have a bath in your home in this day, but there were places where you would bathe, whether it be in a stream or whether it be in a place set aside for that, a bathhouse where you would go and you would wash. You remember this from John 13. Because Jesus girded himself and washed the disciples' feet. And Peter said, no, 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 don't wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash your feet, then you have no part in me. Then he said, wash all of me. And Jesus said, no. But when the rest of you is clean, what needs to be washed is your feet. Now, that's a whole other sermon. But it's the same illustration. You need your feet washed because you wore sandals. And because the roads were not paved like we had, it's not like they were walking down sidewalks and paved roads. The roads were dirt. The roads were dusty. So this part of you didn't get so dirty. But your feet did. And so it was a common practice when you came to one's house that your feet would be washed. But Simon didn't do that. For Jesus, But the prostitute did. She washed his feet with her tears. That's what Jesus says to him. When I came in, you did not give me water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss me. My feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, now listen to what he says I say to you, her sins, which are many, there is no belittling or denying or downplaying the fact that she was a sinner. Jesus is not saying it's okay what she's been doing. That's not what he's saying. He acknowledges the fact that her sins are many. Her sins are many. He knew that she was a sinner. Have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. That's what Jesus said to her. The most important thing that that woman needed was forgiveness. And what we're going to see, partly, is the fact that that's why she went. She wasn't going there to be healed. She wasn't going there because she owed money. That perfume she had was costly. She had money. She wasn't in a stretcher. She knew she was a sinner. And Jesus gave to her what she needed more than anything else. Forgiveness of her sins. Now those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man? who even forgives sins. And as we saw in both the previous text and in this text, who is this man? Why, he's the very Son of God who can say to a cripple, get up and walk. And who could say to a prostitute who was a notorious sinner, your sins are forgiven you. Yes, only God can forgive sins. And he did so. Because he's God. And then he says to the woman. In verse 50. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Sins forgiven. And salvation from Jesus. This is what men need. Sins to be forgiven. And salvation from Christ. This is where we will be going In our study. And the point I want to establish today is it is your sin that is the source of your need for forgiveness. It is my sin that is the source of my need for forgiveness. It is our sin. That is the source of our need for forgiveness. What does God forgive when He forgives men? He forgives their sin. He forgives your sin. He forgives my sin. Now let's turn our attention to the next area that I want to deal with. And that is what we would call the sin which needs to be forgiven. The source of our need for forgiveness is our sin. Now, let's take up the whole matter of the sin which needs to be forgiven. And here what I want to do is to answer the question, What is sin? What is sin? I had a professor one time said, Show me a bucket of sin. Show me a gallon. Show me a barrel. What is it? Where is it? Where does it come from? What I want to deal with more specifically is, though, what does the Bible call sin? What does the Bible say is sin? And I want to begin today by looking at what we would call the definition of sin. And I'm going to ask you to turn to a pivotal passage 1 John 3, 4. So if you would please turn to 1 John 3, 4. And I'm going to tell you why some are smiling. And I want you to know the little catch for this passage. Because I want you to remember this text. And I'm going to tell you how you can always remember this text. It would be great if you memorize it. Or at least one of the phrases here, but I want you to know how you can remember this text. Simple. One, two, three, four. First John three, four. One, two, three, four. First John three, four. The third chapter of the epistle of first John and verse four. You got it? One, two, three, four. First John. 3, 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So according to your Bible, what is sin? Sin is lawlessness. It says it right there. Does it not? Now, this is the Bible, isn't it? This is uh, one who loved Jesus, the great apostle John, whose churches he addressed, uh, the writing in the book of Revelation that we've been seeing for seven years now and finished up with Laodicea. This is the same guy, the one who wrote the gospel of John. So can you believe what he's saying? I hope so. And what does John say? sin is lawlessness sin is lawlessness now that's easy to say but what is he saying well it is apparent that he is referring to the breaking of the law the breaking of the law we'll get to what law in a moment but he's talking about the breaking of the law, and it's easy to say the law of God, or the laws of God. He's talking about the breaking of the law, and how do I know that that's sin? Well, the keeping of the law would not be sin. The keeping of the law would be righteousness, holiness, pleasing to God, the opposite of sin. And so the opposite of breaking the law is keeping the law. And keeping the law would bring honor to God. It's what God constantly told the nation of Israel to do. Follow my laws and you will be blessed. Follow my laws and I will care for you. Watch over you, protect you, bless you. And here, so, as John says, sin is lawlessness. It's the opposite of that. It's the breaking of the law of God. That is lawlessness. So sin is the breaking of, or a violation of, the law of God. Now we have to answer the question, which law? What law of God is he referring to? Because, as you know from your study of scriptures, or perhaps if you don't, that's why we're doing this, it is the fundamentals of forgiveness, the Old Testament law was broken down into three parts, three separate parts. And I want to deal, I'm only going to have time to deal with one of those parts today. The first part, which we can turn to and ask the question, is this the one he's referring to? Is what we would call the civil law. There was the civil law of God given to the nation of Israel through Moses. You know the books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, many of those books contain the law that God gave to the nation of Israel through Moses. And one of them was the civil law. Now, what is the civil law? If I'm to say to you that we're talking about the law that God gave to the nation of Israel through Moses, and we're dealing with the civil law, what is that? What is the civil law? All around us, we have Civility, (laughs) sort of, most of the time. We live in a civilization. So the civil law is what they did in that civilization, more or less, and in many ways, towards one another. They're dealing with men, and they're dealing with men in civil matters. And it had to do with such things as what men could wear or what men would not wear. You were not supposed to wear certain clothes. In fact, you weren't supposed to mix materials. You were supposed to wear certain garments in a certain way. And even your beard. There were instructions for your beard and how you were to wear Your beard. There were instructions and it dealt with things like mold on your house. And what you were to do if you found mold on your house. It had to do with what you did when you found a rash on your arm or on your face. Leprosy or a rash or whatever or discharges and things like that. The civil law dealt with all of these things, and it dealt with what men could and could not eat. You know that the Jews were not supposed to eat shellfish. They were not supposed to eat pork, things of this nature. I'm not going to go into every detail of this, but this is the civil law, dealing with what they can and cannot, should or should not, eat. Now, is this the law that John is referring to when he says that sin is a breaking of the law? That sin is lawlessness, breaking the civil law? No. Now, don't get me wrong. Civil laws, if you break a civil law, that's still sin. But that's not the law to which our Brother John is referring here because the civil law has been changed in the New Testament. I invite you to turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Mark, chapter 7. This is an interesting passage as well. Down in verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside of the man which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about this parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. Do you understand what he's talking about? You see, the Jews were so worried about what they ate and not only what they ate, But how they ate it, it had to be washed in certain ways. The pots had to be washed in a certain ways. Their hands had to be washed in a certain way. And they had all these rules and all these regulations and all these rigmaroles that they had to go through. They could not eat anything that was unclean because then they would be defiled. But Jesus is saying, that doesn't defile you. What you eat does not defile you. What defiles you is the hatred that comes out of your heart. Look at this. He was saying, verse 20, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy slander pride and foolishness all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man you see it's what comes out of your heart and Jesus said to them it's not what you eat that defiles you it's what comes out of your heart and then look at what he says in verse at the end of verse 19 the commentary from mark thus he declared all Foods clean. You see that? Jesus Himself changed the civil law which was given to Moses by God and from Moses to the nation of Israel. Jesus declared all foods clean because He said it's not the food that goes into you that matters, it's what comes out of your heart. Look at Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Here we have the account of Peter. And there was a group that wanted him to come to them. Gentiles that wanted Peter to come to them. So they went to Joppa. That's where Peter was. Verse 9. On the next day, as they were on their way approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. This hour, by the way, is about noon. He's up on that rooftop. Maybe that same roof that they tore up to let that guy down, the paralyzed guy. He went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were all kinds of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures of the earth, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again a voice came To him a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. This is God showing Peter, one of the great apostles of our faith, that's not food that's unclean. It's your heart. Just what Jesus said in the Gospel of Mark. So I ask you to turn back to 1 John 1, 2, 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4. And John says, Sin is lawlessness, or sin is breaking the law. Do you think it's the civil law that he has in mind? No. The civil law was changed by God. And quite honestly, We live in a day when the civil law is constantly changing. We have new laws all the time in our country. Some really bad, and occasionally one or two that might be good. But the law is in flux, and we're adapting, and we do adapt. And yes, we do attempt to keep the law, but that's not the law that John is talking about when he says sin is breaking the law. Next week, we'll look at what he is talking about as we take up the other two aspects of the law given to the nation of Israel through Moses. But as we close today, again, I want to impress upon you that the source of our need for forgiveness is our sin. And that all of us are sinners and in need of the forgiveness of God. As I said, it determines your eternity. Your relationship to Him right now is based upon whether or not your sins have been forgiven. And you have a relationship to Christ and to God. reconciled to God. Through the forgiveness of your sins. Do you know today. That your sins have been forgiven. I'm telling you. It is vital. It is of first importance. And as we go on in this. We will see more and more. Of what the Bible teaches. Regarding what it means. To have your sins forgiven. And how it is that they may be. Let's pray.